I have a new favorite Instagram account. It's called Middle Class Fancy. I mean, it's like kind of a spoof account for the middle class khaki pants wearing America. They posted a couple of days ago the top five funny things to say at the office if you are in the middle class wearing khaki pants working at an office. Number five. Where you say this sarcastically, living the dream. Or when you see somebody, instead of saying, you know, how are things going? Maybe you say this. Number four on the list is uh, you working hard or hardly working. I like this one. Number three. And I have been known to do this, too, where you pop out your finger guns and you go, there he is. (laughs) Number two on the list, saying Merry Christmas when you hand something to someone. And then the number one, according to Middle Class Fancy, the number one top funny thing to say at the office You guys want to go grab a drink later? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome back to episode 156 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hello, Reed. Welcome back. Do you know what the secret meaning and symbolism of the number 156 is? No. Was I supposed to prepare for that beforehand? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I don't know why I looked this up, but I did. According to some website called angelnumber.org, Number 156 is a message from your guardian angels confirming that your needs will be met while you are undergoing some major life changes and adapting to them. I think that that actually might be a good sentiment for today's topic of the show, though. It might be. We'll we'll get a little bit into that. But first, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. If you haven't, rate, review, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts, maybe even stream it on Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening. We certainly appreciate that. It is wonderfully important to us, and uh, we just appreciate all the support through the years because we're coming up on year three, which obviously has evolved into a full-blown network at this point. You can learn more about that over at touchpoint.health and even sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, the TPS report that comes out Monday mornings with aggregated news by our show hosts from around the industry. Promises a quick read, works well on mobile, so be sure to check that out. And if we want to ask our maybe our listeners if they want to send in some kind of audio happy birthday celebration to our podcast, we would be more than happy to run it. Pull out the uh, voice memo, voice recorder on your phone. You can record a quick snippet. We would love that. Or just send us a note through Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Carrier Pigeon, you know, whatever you like. So before we jump into today's show, quick pause and we'll, uh, we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, 
understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, Reed, we're going to be talking about something that I hear a lot about. I knew about ADA and website accessibility. In fact, I actually got deep into some of the articles and and resources that are out there, but I didn't really quite understand it and the application of it until just recently. And so today we're going to be talking about that. I think this is an interesting topic because as much as we talk about new technologies, the digital marketing side, social, all the communications aspects, et cetera, new websites are a thing. Like, I mean, people are going to continue, obviously, to iterate and build new websites over time. This is becoming something that probably the the last time you built a website, not you, Chris, but you, the listener, uh, the last time we all built websites, maybe wasn't as, I'm not going to say important, but top of mind or needed maybe, or, you know, people didn't really talk about this, right? So this time around, this is one of those things from a legal and compliance standpoint that you need to do it for that very reason, but also just because of what it's for, the usability of the site, America Disability Act has been around for a number of times, and it was created to actually support access to both in the physical space as well as online. Now we're starting to see ADA is starting to be audited, particularly around their online websites. And if your website is non-compliant, you can pay a steep fine of up to $150,000 or more by the government. An article that you found that kind of outlines some of this in, in Healthcare Weekly. And there's a couple of things in here that, that are interesting. Historically, everybody thought of ADA as the physical part of a brick and mortar location, the needs there. So you think about ramps and rails and the way things are labeled or uh, highlighted or, or what have you. We've now moved into the virtual space, to your point. And unfortunately, by moving into the virtual space, we're starting to see a ramp up of actual lawsuits that are being imposed. There's a couple of stats in this article that talks about the number of ADA lawsuits that have increased. This article was published at the end of last year, 2019, but they're referring to data from 2018 and 2017. And they say that in the first half of 2018 alone, there was a 33% uptick of ADA lawsuits over the the previous year in 2017. In the kind of follow-up stat, 21% of these cases were, uh, you know, obviously website accessibility lawsuits, which targeted large corporations, government agencies, healthcare businesses, et cetera. Like most lawsuits initially, I guess, start with absence of an actual point in time issue, start with, you know, larger entities. So I think this is kind of a wake-up call, certainly for the community and regional hospital that, you know what, it, it probably hasn't you know been an issue to this point or been top of mind in a lot of cases. So you have an opportunity now to kind of get ducks in a row and whatnot before these outright lawsuits kind of make it down the chain. And a little bit later on, we're going to have an interview with a person that's actually a lawyer. 
And uh, he started a whole website to help people understand ADA a little bit more and understand website accessibility. But in a high level, it's important that you want to look at accessibility because, first of all, obviously the lawsuits, that's a big mm-hmm. threat, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's potentially coming. But also working with other contracts, funding, or assistance from local or federal government agencies, if you're not ADA compliant, that could be something that is certainly part of those discussions. The other thing is, is overall, as hospitals and health systems, we we work very hard to be accessible to many people, multi-languages. We work very carefully in our physical spaces to make sure that people can have access to care. This is just an extension of that. So in part, it's like an extension of your brand to be website accessible. It absolutely is. I mean, I think, again, we talk a lot about brand and what is brand and um, how that's evolved from some years ago of it just being what the logo looks like or colors or, you know, that type of stuff, even your name, it being the experience. And so we first talked about the experience of people in the brick and mortar locations contributing to what the brand actually means. And so that's obviously where a lot of the ADA compliance came in at, at that point in time. But now through the digital front door and some of these other things that we talk about, we're seeing it follow suit there as well. So it might be good for us to maybe pivot now to actually understanding what accessibility might mean, Reed. And you mentioned the word usability as well. Instead of going to Wikipedia this time, we turn to actually the authoritative resource online, which is the Web Accessibility Initiative, W3C. They are the ones that actually set up a lot of the web accessibility regulations, and they have a great page that talks about accessibility, usability, and inclusion, and t- and discusses a little bit about the differences between between them because they're not the same. Let's define all three just so we can kind of set the stage here a little bit. Uh, accessibility addresses the discriminatory aspects related to equivalent user experience for people with disabilities. Web accessibility specifically means that people with disabilities can equally perceive, understand, navigate, interact with websites uh, and tools, things online. It also means that they can contribute equally without barriers. It's not just the consuming part, but they can obviously contribute and use uh, as well. Now, when you talk about that, it sounds a lot like usability, but usability is a little bit different. And again, from the same article, they define usability as about designing products to be effective, efficient, and satisfying. Usability includes user experience design, and it may include general aspects that impact everyone and do not disproportionately impact people with disabilities. Usability practice and research often does not address the needs of people with disabilities in a sufficient way. It's almost like usability is an important part or input into accessibility, but it's not the same thing. Is that because people with disabilities are not involved in the act of usability studies and research and implementation? Let's talk about inclusion because that's another thing. So quickly, inclusion, it, it, it is about diversity and ensuring involvement at least to the greatest extent possible. In some regions, this is also referred to as as universal design or design for all. It addresses kind of a large uh, or broad range uh, of things, including things like uh, accessibility for people with disabilities, which we've talked a little bit about. Access uh, and quality of the hardware, software, internet connectivity. So that all of a sudden starts sounding a lot like the social determinants of health. Computer literacy and skills, um, so education. 
economic uh, situations, uh, education, which I guess kind of uh, ladders back up to that, geographic location, culture, age, including older, younger, and the language. So again, a lot, uh, sounds a lot like the social determinants of health type definitions. So everything's getting kind of colluded together. Let's talk about the differences between accessibility and usability. Why are they subtly different? And um, this article, which is a great uh, article, we encourage people to click on it on the show notes and learn a little bit more, but they actually get into accessibility versus usability and, and kind of point out some of the subtle differences. So accessibility versus uh, usability. Accessibility includes the requirements that are technical and relate to the underlying code rather than the visual appearance, so kind of the back end, if you will. Uh, so an example they give, uh, ensuring the website works well with assistive technologies includes things like screen readers or read aloud content, screen magnifiers that enlarge the content, voice recognition software to input text like into forms and fields and things like that. And these aspects typically are not a focus of usability research and practice. Many of these technical aspects, like being able to be a screen reader, using assisted technologies, are not typically the focus of usability. And I would say that in my experience, doing going through usability, because we don't really address that, that seems like it's a whole different project when you're talking about accessibility versus usability. Obviously, the larger the project gets, I think the more you see this pulled apart. In most projects, it's probably just, you know, we're building for the aesthetic first and then kind of building the usability part of it. And even the accessibility part of it is kind of an afterthought. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. The other requirement around accessibility is related to user interaction and visual design. Some of the points they they list out here, um, inadequate design can cause significant barriers for people with disabilities. And I think that makes sense, right? If you're thinking about a website that's designed that's maybe very visual in nature, if people have vision impairment, that certainly could be a big challenge with them. I'm also thinking about people that are colorblind. That recently happened. I was, one of my staff members were colorblind and he looked at our website and said, you know, I have a hard time understanding and seeing this. Understandable instructions and feedback for website forms and applications, that's usability. They may be helpful or assistive, but they are not meeting the specific requirements. So some people with disabilities, according to ADA, may be excluded if you're just using usability. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that in a lot of cases, maybe most cases, the people building websites and doing a lot of this work don't have limitations. So we don't think about, you know, like, like your example of, of the staff member that, that's colorblind. I think that's really interesting because most of the time we're picking stuff that's brand colors or looks really nice together and like, oh, isn't this cool? You put two similar colors right next to each other. I think that's kind of interesting. But there is an overlap, right, between accessibility and usability. So let's talk a little bit about that. ISO actually defines usability, right? It does. and defines it as the extent to which a product 
can be used by a specified user to achieve specified goals effectively, efficiently, and with satisfaction in a specified context of use. A lot of specifications. So they say specified users. If specified users includes people with disabilities, with a wide range of disabilities, then usability and accessibility align in that particular case. And and then the other specified context of use, if you're considering those context of uses to be accessibility considerations with, let's say, assistive technologies, then yes, usability and accessibility align. I thought about this when you were just saying this earlier, Reed. It's almost like accessibility seems to always fall on the back-end developers, whereas usability tends to be more of a front-end developer kind of approach. It is. And I'm going to go off script here a little bit because um, we just we just finished building a website. I had some interesting thoughts as we were going through this because, again, you're designing visually in a lot of cases, right? Like, so when you decide to build the website, you're doing these mock-ups of you know, here's what the homepage is going to look like. And here's an interior page. When you then start building it, if you have good folks building things, they start bringing up issues with the design. We'll start hearing things like this button that's on top of this you know, kind of motion graphic video thing that's looping. It's not dark enough. Like it doesn't meet guidelines or standards or whatever. Is that going to get you in trouble? Probably not. It's an interesting because it's a little bit of a moving target in my mind of like required versus best in class. If I change it to this or have to fill it in with a color or whatever, all of a sudden it didn't look near as cool. But from a usability standpoint, it wasn't and now it is. I think we've got to be smarter about when we're proposing, mocking up, designing of what realistically you know, when you move from this, you know, static design that somebody did in Photoshop or whatever to the actual build, how things may change. And you talked a lot about visual design. One of the last things I think we should address is for those people playing Touchpoint Bingo at home, we're now going to start talking about smart speakers and voice search. Oh, boy. Here we go. A lot of times now we're we're hearing at conferences we're we're really focusing in on Siri enabled search, Google search, you know, Amazon Alexa, that sort of thing. That actually has a role in accessibility too. So now let's get past just the visual designs. Let's get into way to access the internet through other things. They say these voice activated search obviously devices, these voice first devices are all over the place. We're using them. They're in our homes now, but there are actually specific capabilities or use cases for people with disabilities where we could actually really advance their accessibility to us, right? Yeah. I mean, voice search has opened up a whole uh, new world probably for those that are you know visually impaired and allows them to interact, get content, things like that in, in a way that they historically have not been able to engage the internet. We found an article that uh, is called Smart Speakers and Web Accessibility. It's a great article and it covers a couple of these use cases. So let's talk about them. The first one is about vision impairment. Obviously, for people that have trouble, you know, looking at screens, they're they're unable to kind of visually navigate through a website. 
voice-first solutions are really actually very effective. Many of these devices will allow people to look up phone numbers, to search for information on a website, and then make a call from that. In fact, they have a quote here from a person that is a director of assistive technology at the UK-based Leonard Cheshire Disability. Sounds very important. His name is Stephen Tyler. He said, five years ago, the Alexa Echo device would have definitely been introduced as an accessibility product. But today, it's a mainstream product. And it just so happens that it ticks all of the boxes around digital accessibility. And it's very easy to get because it's now a mainstream consumer device. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? It is. And I had no idea Steven Tyler was into accessibility stuff. So, (laughs) but anyway... It's super interesting because, and you think about Alexa, Google Home, those types of things, but even just like the iPhone and Siri, people could use the iPhone without really, it's not like they have to add a certain app or buy some sort of you know add-on product to make a phone now work for them, uh, even though they're visually impaired. It just works. That's just the way it, it works. I think that's really interesting. It's even in these devices that historically they would not have been able to use, at least not in this way. The next that they talk about here in this article is is limited mobility. So voice activated devices remove the need for a keyboard, touch screens, any sort of like input device, you know, mouse, trackpad, that kind of stuff, which is proven obviously to be helpful for people with limited dexterity. If they have like degenerative joint diseases, such as arthritis, like this is super helpful Uh, You think about a lot of people that have other types of mobility things that maybe not even just more severe over time. Parkinson's comes to mind, you know, or movement disorder type things. Voice allows uh, in the same way uh, an input device that doesn't require you to physically have to type or touch or swipe or whatever. Well, and moreover, like some of these home devices, they're now connected to your smart home, right? So now you can control your temperature. You could check to see who's at your front door. This integration of these Internet of Things within your home space actually can be very effective for these people with mobility limitations because now they can actually become more empowered to do things in their home, which as before may have been a, a big burden for them. So that's that's kind of an interesting application. It, it really is. And, I, and I've got a really funny story, a uh, quick aside here. So of course, uh, everybody knows that listens to the show for any time that I moved to Nashville six or seven months ago, whenever that was. And uh, we bought a, a new house in, in a new neighborhood and uh, so everything was new in it, right? And so the, the oven... I want to say it's like a Whirlpool brand or something like that is Wi-Fi connected, which at the time I thought, I don't really know what that means or why that's important. And and I'm still not entirely sure. However, I do get push notifications when the oven's been preheated. And it was really freaking my wife out for a while that I would like text her from work and be like, hey, what are you cooking? And like, she had no idea like how I knew (laughs) (laughs) that, you know, she had preheated the oven. Yeah, that is interesting. Now, the third use case was very interesting to me. And what I didn't think about, I think it's important for us to talk about people with mental health issues. It's interesting that they actually are doing some studies where these home devices, these voice search devices, have been employed to help users suffering from depression, isolation, and loneliness. Obviously, Alexa, Siri can't replace human companionship. 
But I heard recently that Amazon actually has patents trying to understand the different tones and timbers of your voice because they're trying to understand if you're feeling healthy, sick, or even depressed. So I know right now you can do things like, you know, you say, hey, Alexa, I'm feeling kind of low or I'm feeling sad. And it will say something like, I'm sorry to hear you feel that way, which is kind of interesting. And I thought, you know, that's kind of quaint and trite, but it is a little touch point there. But they say that even for extreme cases, that they're starting to get into understanding the sentiment of people that are talking to these devices to respond to them differently. How do you feel about that? That's interesting. I think that opens a whole nother world. And I'm not, you know, now we're getting into privacy and all kinds of stuff. But I think that's super fascinating, though. Just it's not the same as human companionship, obviously, but it's better in isolation. And maybe it could connect people because these devices can connect people to other people. Maybe they can be used in a way to people that might be normally isolated to start to reach out and connect to to others. So it's an interesting use case for us to keep keep an eye on. I think this is a good natural point for us, Reed, to transition over to the interview. I recently was able to sit down with Chris, who is, as I mentioned to you, he is an expert at ADA website compliance, and he's also an attorney. He practices law, and he's worked on a couple of cases around website accessibility. And he founded a website called Accessible.org, which is designed as a resource for people that are interested in demystifying the different aspects of the American Disability Act and accessibility. So um, why don't we toss over to that interview right after this break? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast. And today I am talking with a person that I've had a couple of conversations with before. And I find him to be really, not only really interesting, but very, very much an expert on this particular topic at hand, which is accessibility. And that is, I, I'm going to call you this, Chris. You're my now friend, Chris Rivenberg, who is not only an attorney, but he's the founder of Accessible.org. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to talk to you over the next uh, couple of minutes here about this particular topic because it's top of mind to a lot of people listening in. Um, But before we jump into uh, accessibility, let's talk a little bit about your background. Share with people listening in where you you came from and how you got to where you you are today. Well, I started seeing ADA website compliance lawsuits pop up and they were becoming more and more frequent. So I was like, well, let me let me see what this is all about. And the more I researched, the more I saw that it's, so to speak, it was the wild, wild west. There was not a lot of certainty. Um, Nobody really knew what to do. And furthermore, it took a while to figure out what actually was going on and what needed to happen. So I just saw this ambiguity, the uncertainty, all of the lawsuits coming through, and I, I had to pursue it and investigate it. And I did. 
And then from that, I just started creating content and putting out information on what to do. It, it's led me to today. Well, kind of like a purist perspective, right? You, you saw a need for people, right, that are building websites to understand this complexity of accessibility. And so you just started to create content to help them. And that led to accessible.org, which we're going to link to in the show notes. And actually, uh, there's a, a lot of content that you've been putting out. And one of those pieces of content is what connected us together. You put out uh, information about sort of demystifying what accessibility is. But from your perspective, both a legal perspective and also now as the founder of this organization, can you help describe what the accessibility really is and what the intent of it is? Well, the intent of it is so that everybody can access and engage with a website so that nobody's left out from the content or the function functionality of a website. And just broadly, legally speaking, it's the full and equal use and enjoyment of a website. So that's all it comes down to. So this is people with uh, disabilities, people that are maybe have uh, visual disabilities, maybe mobility issues. Is that right? Yes, it's it's covering all sorts of disabilities and, and, and various degrees within those different disabilities. So blind or visually impaired, um, deaf or hard of hearing, mm-hmm. um, people with cognitive disabilities, motor skills disabilities. I mean, as many types of disabilities as can be accounted for are attempted to. You're talking about accessibility. Okay. And the accessibility is actually defined by uh, a legal entity, correct? Tell us a little bit about the history of that. The law that we're always going to come back to is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so that requires accessibility from places of public accommodation. And that's where everything starts, everything starts, everyone starts to get involved there because that, that incorporates private entities. So companies, small businesses, nonprofits, everybody um, falls under that umbrella. If you don't fall under any other law, you definitely are going to fall under the ADA title, title three of the ADA. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're going to look to for the law, but that is not going to talk about digital accessibility. With that um, ambiguity, that um, you know, that uncertainty is what's led to litigation and what's caught people so off guard right now. Yeah, and there are a couple of online resources I know in my background for doing some accessibility auditing of websites. There's like W3C and WCAG. Can you explain a little bit about that for people listening in that might have has some familiarity with with them and what their relationship is? Um, WCAG stands for the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. And what these are are recommendations for making web content more accessible to uh, persons with disabilities. And so these guidelines are created by the World Wide Web Consortium. You might might have heard of the W3C. Mm -hmm. And they they have a web accessibility initiative. Uh, The acronym is WAI. And so under that initiative has uh, come the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. There are different versions of those guidelines. The most prominent is 2.0 AA. But the W3C is a nonprofit, it's a non-governmental international community, and they work to develop the web and create standards throughout the web so that the web is more seamless and uniform across the world. And so accessibility is part of their work. And so that that's where... WCAG comes from. 
okay, with describing all of those entities, those government entities, all these three-letter acronyms, et cetera, no wonder it's complicated and it's very difficult. And I know that for many of the people listening in, and myself included, who have been responsible for digital presences of health systems, we want to be accessible. Not only do we want accessibility uh, to be there for you know, our patients, et cetera, but we really feel that that's sort of our missions. Why is it so complicated, and 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 how can we start to demystify what that what it actually means? I would say accessibility is complicated because once you get beyond um, the basics of making a website accessible, it becomes more technically complex, and it's not. This isn't something that's necessarily easy to do. It takes it takes some commitment and a lot of time and resources. And so even your web developer who is knowledgeable of how to code in certain things, he's he or he or she will not be necessarily aware of the accessibility uh, best practices. So they've got to become knowledgeable. You've got to be able to instruct them and it's going to be a cohesive thing. And there are a lot of different uh, components to website accessibility. So when we talk about one of the most basic things, which is adding alt text to images, um, we go from there. That's that's fairly simple and straightforward, but we go from there and we go on and then things become increasingly more complex as we go. I think that the way digital and websites and, and even you know all online content has evolved, it's becoming more and more complex just by the diversity of the different types of medias. And then also again, from a, from a technical perspective, the complexity of how websites are from, you know, federating content and all this other stuff. So uh, you, you alluded to some best practices. Are there uh, a few best practices that maybe you want to share with people listening in that might be interested? Absolutely. And before I do, um, you made a great point. Making our websites accessible, it, it's, it's, diff- it's difficult because our websites are dynamic, right? Each of them, are, each of them is unique. And we're trying to fit them, retrofit them to these accessibility measures. And that's not always simple and straightforward. And it's not always easy to tell whether we've actually made our website accessible. So um, that also introduces complexity. Now, as far as um, the, some of the different things we can do. So if we have a video on our website, that video needs to have closed captioning and accurate closed captioning at that. Um, your video would also need to have a text transcript. So um, if you post this, uh, an audio file of this podcast on your website, then there needs to be a text transcript at- attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, web- website structure is also really important. Um, so you want to u- be able to use the correct heading tags and have them ordered in a, in a hierarchical manner um, that corresponds with the content. So when you think of heading tags, think of tags like H1 and H2, um, you, typically, each page on your website is only going to have one H1, and then an H2 would follow underneath that. And then if there is a subtopic under that H2, then there's an H3, and so on. Um, you're also going to look at color contrast. That's another thing that's going to be involved in accessibility. Um, you want to make sure that at no point in time, um, there's no keyboard trap on the website. So what that means is that uh, the different content and functions on a website are accessible by keyboard only and that you can unplug your mouse and use the website only by only through keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, so many different things that we can go on and on about page titles, having each page, each page of a website, having a u- unique and descriptive title is important. Um, and it just goes on. There's, there's so many different things. 
Yeah, there is. And, you know, recently, uh, in, I, I actually, as part of my digital, last digital team that I was working with, we actually brought someone on board that um, we didn't know this, but at the time, he had colorblindness. And it was a great, it was fortuitous for of us because we didn't really think about that as we were in the development of our new website. And suddenly he became an important part of the testing because we wanted to make sure that, you know, the screen resolution or the, the, the color themes even were able to be compliant to those that have colorblindness. These are very little things that it becomes very difficult, particularly when, you know, most times web developers come from a development background, right? Right. And, and on that point, one thing that really hit me is, you know, the toggle on and off button? As far as colorblindness, it's difficult to tell whether you've toggled on or off if there's just simply a color indicator um, saying whether something is on or off. So that's where I think I, I saw it. I was looking at examples of where colorblindness comes into play. And that was a big one for me because I was like, wow, that's so true. You would never know when you think of just think of like going on your phone and, and you hit the toggle button and it goes green for on or gray for off. And if you're colorblind, you might not be able to tell which is which. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, great example. Yeah, and you go out to like look at the WCAG, even the WCAG 2.0 um, guidelines that are out there. That's a pretty robust, healthy set of guidelines. And, um, you know, just getting through that, you suddenly realize how complex the situation is. Do you find that to be true with some of the people that you're advising? There's nobody that thinks that WCAG is easy to get through. It is definitely not. And and that I, I specifically wrote a guide for that because it is so, it takes hours to, if you really want to read it, it's going to take hours. And then you've got to parse through the language and the language is very, extremely technical. It's just not written so that you can extract meaning right away. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, it's a good initiative. Um, there's a lot of great thought put into it. There's so much research that has gone into it, but it is to, to extract meaning, like real world meaning, like we're just going to read this and start act, taking action. That's not the case. It's not that simple. So I wrote a guide uh, on WCAG 2.0 AA that just tells you in as simple and as straightforward manner as possible, here's what you need to do. And then here's how you do it. And then if you need some more instruction, here are links that will tell you how to do it. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes because I think that is really, really helpful. And when I looked at that, it suddenly demystified a lot of what I was reading. I, you know, I, I often wonder who was, who's the author of these things, and I can understand that they're very technical-minded, but there's a legal side to this, and it's all tied to the ADA, as you said. Tell me a little bit about what you're, what you're tracking because many of our hospitals and health systems, we hear the, the sort of this looming... I wouldn't, I guess I'll call it threat, right? That if we're not ADA compliant, that could have a potential uh, ramification or a, a fee leveraged against the health system. Is that really true? Well, I look at it as two sides. I look at it as there's practical accessibility and then there's lawsuit accessibility. <laughs> so, or, or maybe like better, better termed actual accessibility and then practical legal accessibility because mm. we want to prevent a lawsuit. That's that's driven a lot of my work is, is preventing lawsuits because I think they're fundamentally unfair. A lot of people are caught off guard and a lot of people don't even want to know what to do. And once you get the, once you get the demand letter, you've just lost. You've already, you've already lost even if you can technically win. Um, so I, 
there, there's actual accessibility, which is looking at WCAG and going all through this. And then there's the practical things you can do to help dramatically reduce your risk of a lawsuit. And I would say the one of the most important things is to use the wave extension tool because that is by far the favored um, uh, automated tool for website accessibility that the plaintiff's law firms are using. Mm-hmm. Use that to gauge how accessible or inaccessible your website is. Look at what it's flagging as errors and eliminate those errors from your website. Now that doesn't, that definitely corresponds with accessibility, but it doesn't, just because you can eliminate the errors, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've made your website accessible, Mm -hmm. but it is very, very important in terms of lowering that percentage chance that you receive a demand letter. And there are organizations out there that help with website accessibility certification, isn't that right? People that can kind of help you go through that audit, so to speak? Yeah, there are definitely, you can get audits a lot of places. I think one important thing on audits is that they are, you should not look for an automated, uh, something, anything that's an automated scan um, or an instant scan, that's, that's nice and it's great to use as a supplement, but what you truly need to know about accessibility is a manual audit because website accessibility is not something that can be automated despite some of the claims you may see. Mm. This is not something where, you can go in and fix it within two days or whatever someone claims. It, the, the difficult part about this, the part that takes the most time, especially for more dynamic or more complex websites, mm-hmm. is the manual work that needs to go into it. So whether it's a, the manual work involved in the audit or the manual work involved in remediation, it must happen at the code level to be truly accessible. So one thing we can clue in on your audience here, what I think is going to happen in the near future is that we're going to see that a lot of the, um, a lot of the entities that are using these toolbars mm-hmm. uh, or instant, um, instant fixes as their path towards website accessibility, um, they're, all, they're going to end up all getting a demand letter and they're going to make it easier for plaintiff's law firms because they're not, these toolbars actually don't address all of accessibility. There's a significant part that these, this instant accessibility misses out on. And so when plaintiff's lawyers uh, start to move, they start to move for, um, you know, different, a different path to easier um, violations, they're going to look at these toolbars and they're going to, they're going to realize that these toolbars don't actually address accessibility. I mean, they do, but they don't actually take care of it um, fully. Okay. Well, that's, that's really helpful to, to understand that. Now, is accessibility the same, you know, throughout the United States or because, you know, we're, we're hearing a lot about like state by state, they're kind of addressing this differently. What is your perspective on that? You might see some standard that's saying you need to adhere to uh, WCAG 2.1, which is a, um, the latest, uh, the latest current um, best practices from WCAG, but Right now, I always advocate let's go, let's get 2.0 taken care of. And 2.1 works on top of 2.0. So even if you want to have the latest version of WCAG incorporated on your website, that's fine. But you're always going to start at 2.0 AA anyways. So you'd want to take care of that. And that's what every every court decision I've seen has cited to is 2.0 AA. 
that's been across the world. We're seeing that in all different types of nations. And yes, mm. so whatever court you're in, uh, whatever you know state, <laughs> it's going to come back to 2.0 AA. Even if you practice health, let's say uh, internationally, uh, complying to 2.0 AA probably is best practice then. Is that is that what you're saying? Yes. That's good to know. That's comforting to know. But it still seems pretty onerous, right? It seems like a big bar to, to lift yourself up to. Um, the question I have, right, as websites become uh, – we've done a couple of episodes, Reed and I have, on the fact that the website is actually now – there's content from your site that's aggregating to other platforms as well. Is accessibility just compliant to just websites or is social media now becoming uh, involved in this? How about Google? You know, those sorts of things. What are you seeing from that? kind of trend uh apps are definitely part of this so Mm. we're seeing we're seeing app uh, lawsuits creep up or at least be included uh with website lawsuits um as far as social media i haven't seen too much there's not too much going on with social media but that's mostly going to be taken care of at the platform level Mm -hmm. and then where things i think will become interesting in a few years is to the extent that the social media platforms give users control over the content and the ability to make it accessible. Um, that's already happening uh, somewhat on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You have the ability to add alt text to your images. And so look out for that going forward is that you know the social media platforms are going to make everything as accessible as possible that they can on their end and then they're going to put it in in the hands of the users and then i think um at that point we will see the ability to have a an accessible user channel um and receive lawsuits from that but i think we are years away from that happening clearly you understand this you know accessibility to the core i really appreciate this i'm going to pick your brain on something that i also see is potentially uh, being impacted by accessibility. And there's this huge rise now with uh, online technology, particularly on your websites, around chatbots, around, uh, you know, even voice search activity. Do those, those trends of having these different ways to kind of interact with website content, how do you see those being impacted by accessibility? Well, it's interesting that you say the chatbots because that's something I was recently... I installed a uh, chat box on one of my websites and I can tell you right now that there are, there is no vendor that actually fully adheres to WCAG 2.0 AA. I had to customize the the chat box that I ended up Hmm. putting onto it. Everything on your website, whether it's third party or not, you're going to be responsible for. So you want to be careful with what integrations, what widgets, um, what scripts, anything that's a third party script integration, whatever, you want to make sure that that also is adhering to WCAG 2.0 AA. So what we're going to start looking for is whether these vendors that we're bringing in or, you know, integrating into our website, we want to make sure that they themselves are Um, you know, accessible. So that's definitely going to be something huge going forward. You're talking about something that's very important. And for many of the people listening in, they might be left with like, well, where do I start, right? Maybe they haven't even started doing the audit. Maybe they're just starting to investigate the best way to do this or involved in a website project. And um, so I know that you've created a a number of online resources, uh, but where would you suggest they start to go to get information? 
Well, to information, um, accessible.org, if you go to accessible.org, you can see some of the information I've put out. You can also, if you subscribe, I'll instantly send you uh, the WCAG guide I was referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a, that's a good place to read to start. And then just, I think it's taking action, immediate action too, because um, sometimes this is looked as to as like a project in the maybe the near future, or like let's say we're in Q1 now, like our Q2 goals or objective is to get on website accessibility. This is something that really requires no bureaucracy. Just you just get started, and, and because it is a process and it takes a while. And even if you like, even if you wanted a done for you solution, so you go out into the marketplace and you say, I'm going to hire. Um, this one agency and have them do everything. Even if you did that, you're looking at probably a six to eight week time to wait to get everything done. So it just takes a while. And in, in the meantime, these plaintiffs law firms are not waiting at all. And if you haven't received a demand letter, it's probably not because you're accessible. It's just because they haven't got to you yet. Ooh. So um, if your website is commercial in nature, you are definitely um, you are definitely ripe for uh, receiving one of these if, if you have an inaccessible website. Wow. Well, so that that really is a, a you know a, a very strong statement, but one that I think we need to heed to. And one of the things I always counsel people that I work with is you know just updating your website once is not enough. You, your website's kind of a living, breathing. Uh, representation of your organization you need to stay ahead of and compliant with not only accessibility but all the other standards that are out there that we need to make sure that we're you know keeping on in, in abreast of Chris you are an invaluable resource and I know people listening in that are interested in this topic they probably want to get a hold of you online I, I know you mentioned your website before but maybe share um, again the ways that they can reach out to you and and stay in touch with you and, and learn more Sure. Uh, accessible.org is the main way to get in contact with me. If you go to accessible.org, you can find my contact information. Also, I wrote the ADA book, and you can find the ADA book at adabook.com. And uh, those are the two main places. I won't. Um, I write a lot on Medium, so if you go to medium.com slash at Chris Rivenberg, and you'll just want to search for that. Um, but if you do that, then you'll be able to find uh, my articles, and you can subscribe, and you'll get every article notification. Um, and then other than that, I would say that to start somewhere to just, you know, whether it's just adding alt text, uh, to every image and then check, check and see, um, if your website is, uh, showing any errors on the wave extension tool. Like, so the, with wave, um, it's, it's a browser extension. You can install it in, in Chrome or Firefox and just, uh, activate it as soon as you get your website. And then you can see what you're up against, uh, as far as your website, mm. Um, so, and then another thing that I, I want to stress to, um, everyone listening is to, once you get going on this is to write an accessibility policy, um, for your website. And I, if you search for example, website accessibility policy, you can find one that I've created and then customize it to you, to your website. Um, but, uh, get one of those and you want to make it very open and obvious that you are committed to accessibility and taking this seriously and, um, working on it and continually getting better on it. So um, it's one of those things you want to invest a lot of time because you're going to have to anyway. This is not one of those things that you can avoid. Um, this is coming pretty soon. It's going to be 
it's going to be obvious that every website needs to be accessible. So it's not one of those things you want to avoid. You want to attack it aggressively. Just be as aggressive as possible with it. And that way you're going to be much, much better off than, than trying to shy away from this and, um, you know, maybe hope that there's more clarity in the law or, you know, wait and see what happens with other websites. Just attack it, just embrace it and, and get it done with. Those are good words to live by. I think that those are very, very helpful. And I definitely will link to all of those resources. You put out a lot of great content, um, particularly on Medium, where uh, really practical information to get people the right mindset around what to do. Chris, thank you so much for your time today on the show. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I really appreciate it. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Great talk and chat you had with uh, with Chris. I think, again, this stuff is super fascinating and interesting on how usability, accessibility, uh, even inclusion is going to change the way we think about and build online properties, websites, online presence, you know, kind of however you want to frame that. So appreciate that. So um, thanks for doing it. Couple of things before we get to recommendations. Of course, we've got South by Southwest coming up uh, before too terribly long uh, around the spring break time frame. Uh, as well as not actually not too long after that, the Healthcare Marketing Physician Strategy Summit, which is going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada. Is that right? That's right. Las Vegas, Nevada at the Cosmopolitan. Love that place. Uh, so anyway, that'll be, that'll be a fun conference uh, first part of April. So uh, again, be sure to sign up for the newsletter. We've got all the details and links in there, but uh, certainly you can track that stuff down online as well. We'd love to hear if you're going to be there uh, at any of those conferences and sync up. We'd love to say hi. Again, sign up for the TPS report. You can do that over on the website, touchpoint.health. Check out the other shows, all our sponsors. Um, we'd love that. Uh, let's do a couple of reviews. Yeah, absolutely. Let me start today, Reed. I am going to recommend something that recently a friend sent to us in the in the mail. She swears by it. And when, she, when I got it, I first looked at it, I was like, what is this? It is the Back Relax Pocket Size Portable Footrest. Wow. So imagine this, like a little tiny foldable footrest. It's about four inches high. And it's designed if you're sitting around uh, at a desk or you know, various other places where you sit. It's a four inch riser for your feet that you put on. It's like a little platform. It's designed to help you with your back, your spine posture. It's designed to prevent sort of back pain, particularly if you sit around a lot. And you can also use it when you're standing and like kind of put one foot up on it, kind of elevate a little bit just to shift your balance and posture a little bit. I've been using it the whole time we've been recording the podcast. And I'm telling you, it's noticeable. I feel a lot different than when I'm just normally sitting in a chair talking. So that's what I'm going to recommend. The back relax pocket size so you can fold it up and put it in your backpack. Portable footrest. Very interesting. I'm going to have to check that out. Uh, that sounds really interesting. 
I'm going to go a little bit of different direction. I got this through work. They gave these uh, to us not too long ago. And I'm not going to give a specific brand because there's like a million of them out there. But it's a three-in-one wireless charging stand. And it's, so it's got the QI stuff, right? So it's got kind of the little prop for your, your phone, you know, that you can just kind of lay it on there. And if it, it's able to do the QI kind of wireless charging kind of stuff, you, you know, you got a place to kind of set your phone. It's kind of like a little prop. And then it's got like a little stand over on the, on the right hand side of it where your uh, AirPod case kind of snaps in and charges. And then around that, uh, you can put your Apple watch like around it. So it charges all three of them. Uh, at one time. So it'd be great, you know, uh, in a closet or by the bed or, you know, whatever, where you could kind of dock everything at night, if you will. I use mine here at the office just so when I walk in and out of my office, I can just grab my phone. It's not really plugged in. It's just laying or kind of propped up, I guess. But anyway, it's kind of cool. Uh, something I've seen for a while, you know, different wireless chargers and stuff and hadn't given it just a ton of thought other than it looked kind of neat. But anyway, got one uh, through work and it's really cool. I like them. That is really cool. It sounds like something I would could really use here in my home office too. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, three-in-one wireless uh, charging stand, if you will. Phone, AirPods, watch. So there you go. Well, uh, another great recording, another great episode. Uh, again, rate, review, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts, wherever you happen to be listening. We certainly appreciate that. Number one thing you can do for us is to tell someone else about the show. Uh, we love uh, to get new listeners and love to hear from those that are currently listening. So feel free to reach out, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever works for you. Uh, we look forward to, uh, to connecting. So for uh, Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.